Welcome to the Rooted in Change podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Jan and you're listening to the Rooted in Change podcast. This show features European cleantech champions and their solutions to tackle the climate crisis. Today I'm joined by Björn, the head of strategy and vice CEO of NitroCapped. NitroCapped creates a sustainable, cost-efficient green nitrogen fertilizer with zero emissions, using air, water and renewable energy as the only inputs. We learn more about how this works in just a minute. Welcome, Björn. Thank you. As with all other guests, I'm really curious who you are. So please tell me a bit about your background. Who are you as a person? Uh, yes, uh, you presented. My name is Björn Lind. I'm the strategy director of NitroCapped. I also run my own uh, investment company called Lindia Holding. Uh, I'm from Uppsala, Sweden. My educational background is biotech engineering with a combination of master in business and entrepreneurship. And I started my career as a strategy consultant at Accenture, but since 15 years, I've been in the climate tech space. I'm a co-founder of seven companies. I've been advisor, consultant, early advisor, uh, investor, and together, uh, I think I worked with something like 60 companies in one way or another, but of course, a few uh, have been very short projects, mm. others been a little bit longer. Um, uh, it's been with renewable energy, material science, food tech mostly, uh, all with the climate tech uh, touch. The three companies that I would say I'm most known for are Graphmatech Disruptive Materials and uh, In Vitro Meat Consortium, the two first materials com- material science companies. And the last one was one of the very first cell-based companies uh, in the food tech space back in 2009. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, since three years, I decided to basically only focus on the the food tech or the food chain, decarbonizing the food chain. So I have uh, 13 investments and NitroCapped is one of them. And I think this company is so amazingly interesting. So I decided to join that company as the strategy director and I'm working there full-time right now. Super exciting. And I mean, you just said that you've been um, doing this for well more than 15 years and have been working with over 60 companies what would you say has changed over the last 15 years so has awareness increased what are sort of the fundamentals that are different for founders and and the industry the companies uh, compared to a while back yeah well i think in terms of of funding of startups uh, that has developed uh, enormously and if you think about climate tech startup that is probably the sector that has developed the most uh, and i think we have the uh, the greta thunberg effect <laughs> i don't know if you know this uh, young lady from from sweden that actually protested against the, the swedish government initially and then against uh, uh, many governments and and I think that was kind of when the big mass started to understand that we have a serious serious problem that we need to solve, and and I think from from that that was the really starting point of of climate tech being well 
financed and it has increased immensely since then. Last year was a little bit of a drop, but but apart from that, it was uh, it's been exponential growth. It's really interesting looking back that uh, Greta, who's sparked uh, the the Fridays for Future movement, probably across the world, uh, and then also in in Germany, for example. Um, at that moment, that didn't feel that pivotal, but if you look back, that's really true. That out of a sudden media and the general public was just a lot more aware of what climate tech is and how it can contribute to tackling the climate crisis. Yeah, I, I, I'm not 100% sure it was only her, but it was like the moment, I think it was mm -hmm. the the drop that made the, the glass to spill over, so to speak. Right. Mm. And you just mentioned that you're both an investor in NitroCapt, but also uh, they're working there full time. So maybe you can just dive into, based on your longstanding experience, why did you join the company? What made you uh, change sides, so to say? Or why? Yeah. To say I, why? Why did you choose to fully invest your your precious time into building and scaling the company? Exactly. Uh, I think there are a few factors. Uh, First of all, uh, I'm very uh, amazed by this truly groundbreaking technology and that being on a huge market. We are talking the largest chemical on earth that we are electrifying uh, the process to, to produce it. Um, but of course, also in the terms of CO2 savings, we have an amazing case. Like if we would follow uh, the business plan we have, uh, eventually we would save uh, something like six times the emissions of the country Sweden or the same emissions as the country of Spain in uh, every year. Uh, and, and I would say there is also one other factor, uh, and that is, of course, uh, the team. But but eventually, when I joined, there was only the founder, Gustav Forsberg, who invented this uh, brilliant invention. Uh, so he is a really a brilliant inventor, but uh, uh, also he is... Um, which is not so common, he also have a vast sales experience because he has been a technical salesperson for for plants, targeting exactly our customers. So he really understands the, the market and the customers. Uh, so it's and, not just about developing the technology, but really also having the commercial understanding of translating exactly. that into a very proposition exactly. that's relevant for the been audience. In, Exactly. I've been uh, working with a lot of university startups where you have research that don't really understand the market. And also opposite that you have people from the market don't really understand the technology. So having that combination in one person is, is just brilliant. Yeah, it's and really sweet on top spot. of it's really a sweet spot. And on top of this, we are working really, really well together. And I, I like to work with him. And together we have built up a team uh that we of course also like to work with uh, you know really superstars so uh the team and the groundbreaking technology and the carbon footprint uh, i think those are the three major uh reasons why mm -hmm. i joined the natural capital 
well l- lovely to hear that you have really found that unique combination of uh well someone that both understands technology and market as well then the technology itself and the team surrounding the two of you as we just mentioned the technology maybe that's a good time to actually explain because we haven't gone there yet what NitroCap does so what is it that well what's what's the secret source of the technology what is it that you do yeah so NitroCap's mission is to produce the world's most environmentally and economically sustainable nitrogen fertilizer and to explain that I think I should un- explain what nitrogen fertilizer is um, yeah that I guess it, a lot of people know sort of that there is fertilizer but probably yeah, not a lot more exactly uh, so uh, in general uh, there is a lot of nitrogen in the air but the plants are not that good in taking it up themselves so in nature they use uh, bacteria or other microorganisms to do that uh, but it's um, a slightly inefficient process so humans have helped them to capture nitrogen uh, and uh, actually we have now created a dependency on nitrogen being the most uh, needed uh, plant nutrient it's about 56% of all fertilizer, it's nitrogen. So it's really the big uh, need uh, the, for, for, for the plants. Uh, and if we wouldn't have nitrogen fertilizers, uh, the world harvest would decrease by about 50%. There would be mass starvation. We, mm, we wouldn't be able to be 88 billion people on Earth. Right. Some people say we, we could only be four. Billion, but but that's a, a, an estimate, of course. Um, so the bottom line is nitrogen is really important for yeah, yeah double food a, production. Exactly, uh, and uh, uh, it's also the largest chemical that humans produce in terms of volumes. Uh, the problem, however, is that how we produce it today, uh, we do it with uh, fossil gas. Before it was called natural gas, but now it's called fossil gas. Uh, it's so we use uh, fossil gas to bind the nitrogen, and we get ammonia. Carbon dioxide goes away, uh, and since this is such a voluminous process, uh, there is a lot of carbon dioxide goes away. Actually, the footprint from only this process is about the same as the whole aviation industry, only in the production. Then you have even more uh, uh, emissions in the applications. Uh, Our solution to this is a a new invented process by Gustav Forsberg and Peter Berling, I should also mention, he was a co-inventor. it's called Sunifix. It's short for sustainable nitrogen fixation. So it's a kind of electrification. So instead of using fossil gas, uh, we are using oxygen and renewable electricity. Uh, and 
oxygen is also in the air. So the only feedstock we need is air and the air is still for free. So basically the only thing we need to buy is, uh, is energy, uh, electricity and renewable electricity. Because if we do this with renewable electricity, we, we could make this climate neutral. Uh, but even, but there are also many other advantages, like we could, uh, with this technology, it's economically uh, feasible already at small scale, which means that you can localize the production and you can cut the supply chain. There are many benefits. That sounds really exciting and really groundbreaking in terms of revolutionizing that market and i would also assume that you just as you just mentioned that the production could be localized that right now i would assume that the market is quite concentrated in terms of who's able to produce nitrogen at large volumes there's probably i would say i would assume five or six players that are able to do so and using your technology you're able to break that up as well right and maybe redistribute uh, power as well Exactly. Uh, with the present technology, which is really dependent on scale, you have large or huge facilities where the gas is cheap, like in Norway or right. in Germany, where the gas comes in from the pipelines, comes in from Russia. Uh, of course, this is this business model of buying cheap gas is not anymore, or from Russia at least, it's not mm. viable anymore. So. I think the German uh, industry is mounting down mm. uh, and everyone in look in Europe are looking for new solutions and at the same time the countries want to secure their the national supply chain for food and that includes nitrogen fertilizer so they want to have localized production I, I would say the major benefit is that we can uh, go in and cut steps in the supply chain and, and and reduce transports and make it more efficient that way. Yeah, uh, and that would be my follow-up question there as well, because, I mean, in, in terms of global food production, you need certain geographic requirements of probably stable weather, you know, uh, sunnier or, uh, yeah, sunnier, better weather conditions than Sweden might have on an average yearly basis. And isn't that then also exactly the sweet spot, for example, for cheap electricity re re or renewable electricity production? So is there, isn't there an argument to say those two things actually fall together? Sunny regions, for example, in, um, yeah, Southern Europe also have the ability to produce more green electricity than, for example, uh, not sustainable weather conditions up in the Nordics. That's, uh, that's very correct. Uh, I mean, Energy is the, basically the only running cost here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, having a, a good price of the renewable energy source is, is key. Uh, and if you look at, I mean, we could use sun, uh, wind, hydro, geothermal, uh, atomic power, we, we consider to be okay since it's it's uh, not decarbonizing uh, it's not um, uh, fossil and uh, so there are different combination that we can think of but certainly there are, are some places 
uh, where it's better than than other places. But there are quite a few of those places, of course. So uh, we also believe that in, in on a little bit longer perspective, we this technology has a potential to be run intermittent, uh, so that in the what I mean is that we can turn it on and off quite easy. And then we could have off-grid solutions for for renewable energy, maybe in combination with a small battery or something mm. just to even out the effect. Uh, but that would be super interesting because then we just need a good uh, wind spot or a good uh, solar spot, or, or and, and we don't need to have it up hundred percent. Or we could just connect yeah. it to the grid and buy energy when it's a, a good price. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting also because out of a sudden mm. um, the energy market and sort of food supply intersect because normally, you know, if you, if you think about the energy market and think about how can we balance out demand and supply, it's often what you just described, right? We have peak shaving or there's batteries coming in, we charge EVs when the prices are low or even negative and so on. But that's often connected to heating, mobility and so on. But now, out of a sudden, with additional technologies like yours coming in and saying they don't have to run um, at with base load power all the time, but can easily be switched on and off, there's an argument to say, look, su sustainability really is interconnected and becomes, uh, or is is affected then by by energy and has an impact also on food supply. I think that's really interesting and really exciting there. Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, we we are taking air. Uh, and it's uh, in only one step we can create nitrate and that process is actually easy to start and stop but then it's the processes around that we are fighting a little bit with sure. uh, being in intermittent so yeah i think yeah, we'll assume... reach there but but maybe not in the first plant yeah i mean i, I assume that's with all more, more or less industrial scale production facilities that um they're, they're normally designed to run at uh, well more or less all the time which I think brings us nicely to the question uh, how far have you come because you mentioned that it's um, even economically viable at a small scale so what scale are we talking about at the moment what are your plans for the future there uh, we are building a pilot plant and uh, according to plan this will be ready next year hopefully before the summer, but at least uh, next year. And as soon as we have that uh, uh, pilot working good enough, so to speak, uh, we will start to to build the first full-size plant. Right. Uh, and uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have a letter of intent with a customer for building such a plant. Mm -hmm. uh, it could also, yeah, we will, we will see how, how we will uh, finance that or we will sell it or if we will own it ourselves. But uh, right. uh, we are in also in the planning to to prepare ground and, and things for that big plant. And I don't know if you can comment on this, but what terms of production volumes are we talking about for the pilot plant and then the first scale or first full scale plant? Uh, yeah, the the first full scale plant uh, will 
supply fertilizer for about a hundred thousand hectares. So that would be a, a, a region, an average region in Sweden. Uh, so there would be a need for uh, something like 500 plants in Germany or 600 in France, 25 in Sweden. Mm. Yeah, gotcha. Exciting. And <laughs> just on that, I mean, the scaling up technology part is, I think, one of the key challenges for clean tech companies. And this is always where it becomes really difficult and intense to take a process that one knows works, but really sort of bring it from the small scale to then the full industrial scale a few weeks back. And uh, we had Pete from Deep Branch on the podcast here, and he really explained how difficult and time intensive it was and how many challenges he had to overcome. So maybe you can shine a bit of light on the challenges that you and your team had to overcome until uh, this day in scaling up the company and the processes. I think the, the biggest challenge uh, was in the beginning because when Gustav started, he didn't have any, uh, you know, money or any lab or, you know, just a, a great idea. And uh, uh, so it took him a while. So he had the idea that, okay, I must find the best researchers, at least in Europe. Uh, so it took him a while to get that. And eventually when he could gather a consortium, he, he could... Um, uh, get some small uh, money from from the government, and and we joined. An, he joined an accelerator that could pay the bills, but no salaries. So he he really bootstrapped for five and a half year. <laughs> until, well, that's a long time, yeah. Yeah, uh, until uh, he reached this. Uh, uh, proof of concept basically and then i together with him we could write the, the business plan together and, and reach out and then we first so it was first in in january 2022 we will receive the first funding but then it was like a catch-up effect nothing 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 and then we got uh, two million in 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 private funding and another mm. million in in grants uh, so and and from that was just before the war and the war uh, is also a european fertilizer crisis uh, so yeah we, i was thinking earlier when we talked we, sort of about about the setup and you know when you mentioned the gas supplies and ukraine's exactly. role in food production and russia's yeah. role in supplying cheap gas i was wondering sort of how that impacted you and your business exactly so what happened just after our uh, first funding was that, uh, uh, yeah, it was it became a fertilizer crisis. We, the day after the invasion, we realized that this would be the case since uh, Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus are all big exporters of, of fertilizer, but even more, Russia supplies the gas that Europe used to, to produce its own fertilizer. Uh, so the prices really skyrocketed in 2022, and it's still up 70% uh, from what it was before the war. Uh, and of course, we having a, a gas-independent solution that you can produce locally, uh, we got a lot of attention. To, to, it was... <laughs> 
uh, it was a little bit like drinking uh, water from a, uh, you know, what is called fire. <laughs> right, the fire hose. Fire hose, that's, that's yeah. the word. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Um, and again, yeah. I, I also like the analogy mm. of the, the ketchup effect that, you know, a, a long time nothing came out of the bottle and then out of a sudden everything at once. Mm. Yeah, and since then, I mean, it's it's been a an ex very exciting journey, and we have been able to to get more funding and hire more people, and and we are getting closer every day. And so, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that's that's lovely to hear. Um, and I guess with the number of climate tech clean tech companies last year, that war again, maybe also in connection to what you mentioned before with the Greta effect, uh, I think. The, the war at least reshaped a lot of people's perception on how we need to produce energy, how dependent we are on other countries for whether either, whether it's the gas supply or even um, supply chains in general. So I think it shaped up a lot of interesting conversations and um, unveiled those dependencies that we accepted beforehand but maybe are not willing to accept it to the same extent anymore and i think the examples that you gave around russia supplying gas for europe's nitrogen production that that is not happening anymore um, and that obviously leads also to a, a crisis for the nitrogen producers across europe because um, they don't have the cheap gas supply anymore but that's a really interesting fact that yeah. i guess the majority of people are just not aware of i i think there are no european countries or companies that dare to build a business model of buying cheap gas from russia within mm. a, a quite long future yeah yeah so uh, hopefully so i think that's the the opportunity right mm. yeah, hopefully uh, the majority of the businesses have learned that lesson mm. um But, but com coming back to your question about uh, scaling and and what were our challenges, uh, uh, well, of course, uh, it's it's the challenge to to scale up the technology in, in general. But I, I would say we are. Uh, it, it's a lot about the trade off. Should we build it as quick as possible or should we the other extreme would be build the perfect product that we right. you know we kind of think we can yeah so where where do we how much time do we spend i mean if if the pilot is not good enough maybe it's uh yeah we put ourselves in a bad situation but if we spend too much time the money runs out so we ne need to find that Uh, that balance and I think that's a, a big discussion within the company right now I guess especially for uh, engineers in general that I guess for, for the most of the time are mm. looking for the perfect solution rather than the good enough solution whereas then from the business perspective and what the company also needs is to prove that it works at scale uh, to actually then being able to commercialize it attract more necessary funding in order to showcase it to the world uh, it's a delicate balance uh, that's exactly how it is and that's my experience mm -hmm. from many 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 startups that uh, it's been a, an argument between the the engineer department uh, development department and, and the business department about yeah. exactly this mm -hmm. 
maybe then not in regards to NitroCap, but in general, I mean, given your knowledge and your experience in the clean tech sector, what would you give as a general advice to um, leaders in that situation? What, How should they go about finding that balance? What is the What is the right balance? I think for a startup that is dependent on, on venture capital, you need to play by those rules. And those rules are rather to keep the speed hmm. rather than uh, than making the first product and, and hope that that would be good for the market. So, right. um, uh, I mean, in, in, in maybe I have two, two advices and one would be that, okay, don't develop in your own lab and then go to the market, rather speak to the market very quickly and try to understand them. Uh, and the other would be like, uh, listen to, understand what the invest investors in the next round would like to see, which milestones mm. are actually important. Right. Uh, and, and try to uh, target those because mm. that will bring you to the, the next level. Mm. And and other tasks might be important for the company, but you can't just focus on them because you have just uh, a limited uh, resources. So you need to focus on exactly what brings you to the next level. Yeah, I think that's really valuable advice to say, look, think about what the investors will want to see as a milestone in the next round rather than what you think is relevant as for the company as an next step, because those two things might be very different mm. in a way that, if you're targeting to build a you know a pilot plant or a scale however far but that might be way beyond what investors would want to see for as a milestone for the next round then that will really put you back and put a lot of strain on the resources and trying to get there without the additional funding might just be really hard so i think that's really valuable advice and planning ahead and allocating the resources in the correct way mm. then coming back to to nitro capped Looking forward, because now we've sort of um, started a bit there. What are your what are the big plans for the next year? So obviously we talked about the the pilot plant and then the first in plant at industrial scale. What more do you have in in the pipeline? As we talked a lot about gas, so maybe, exactly. actually not in the pipeline, but what, exactly. what now, now the focus is very much on finalizing the pilot, and we're starting to preparing for the. The first full-size plant, we can call it a demonstration plant. Uh, our uh, business model is to have the plant as a product. Uh, so we, our product is the turnkey plant. So uh, the idea is that the second full-size plant should be bought uh, right. by customers. Uh, and, and that could be... Uh, I mean, the first sales could happen in, yeah, I would say one and a half to three years from now, something like that. Uh, and I, then I expect that we sell to maybe two to five customers, one plant. But remember, these plants are pretty small, comparably. Uh, so every customer would have probably a need for uh, tens of plants so the idea is that they will test it and then they 
think, wow, this is this is the <laughs> uh, the way we want to produce uh, fertilizer. So let's buy a set of plants in the next step. Um, so uh, in that way, and, and if we assume um, that we have a, a, a disruptive solution, I mean, in terms that it's uh, it's locally produced, it's gas independent, it's fossil free, but even more, it's actually uh, in in theory, it's much more energy efficient. And we have a, a very clear roadmap to to go uh, even below uh, the theoretical lowest value for for any ammonia process. So, right. uh, and and if this would be the case, uh, we we think we can have a disruptive solution in terms of lowest production cost and all the other benefits, and then. Our plan is within ten years to build more than a thousand plants. Right. Yeah, I mean, if if you achieve all of that, um, sort of bringing down costs even below the traditional ways, and then uh, as well as sort of making it emission-free, uh, location independent, more or less, um, mm. I think then there there are a lot of benefits, and uh, then you're selling the whole package, and I wouldn't see why uh, fertilizer. <laughs> Companies wouldn't and be interested. Exactly, and a thousand plants sounds a lot, but we are thinking about like a, um, think about one plant is four containers. Uh, so we will mass produce these containers, and we will put it out. So from a delivery perspective, this is not an issue. Uh, so, and I think from the market perspective, if we have all this good things i think we mm -hmm. can really uh, go out so it's it's the challenge for us is rather to scale up the technology and that's the challenge we are are dealing with right, right. now but right. we're seeing the light in the tunnel but uh, it's still some some uh, things to, to to solve yeah sure mm -hmm. coming to the end of our conversation i would like to turn us back to the beginning where we talked about your um, long-standing history in clean tech, climate tech, and sort of the majority of companies that you've seen. I'd be interested in knowing more about what keeps you going. You know, we, we, we said a lot about, or we talked a lot about um, the Greta effect and um, how that sparked more attention for climate tech companies. And at the same time, you could also argue that Looking back 15 years ago, you know the, the challenge hasn't become easier. If we look at uh, this summer's uh, droughts as well as floodings that we're seeing, you know global global highest temperatures recorded again, uh, forest fires in Europe and so on. So sort of it becomes more and more daunting the effect of the climate crisis and then looking back over the last 15 years yes we have moved forward but probably not at the speed that we have to move forward so what is it that makes you get up in the morning and uh, get to your desk uh, work on scaling up NitroCap and not lose hope in a nutshell I would say yeah I would I mean there are, are several aspects of what uh, brings me up in the morning and if I start with uh, like a, as a person, my drivers are creativity and adventure. 
So uh, being in charge of the strategy in a well-recognized startups, you, you, I will get those. So this is, this is one thing. It's, it's a position that I always dreamt about. Uh, but of course, an even bigger driver is to have this bigger purpose. This is super, super important. This is the most important. Uh, and I, I believe that climate change is the, the biggest threat to humanity um, and that it's already affecting us severely. Uh, and I strongly believe that the Paris Agreement, at least the Paris Agreement, needs to be behold. And for me, if we are continuing at the same level of carbon dioxide emissions as we are doing now, uh, according to the sources I have, we need to stop in 2029. That is in six years. That is in six years. That's insane. Uh, so, and since I come from where I come, I believe that technology uh, is the solution. We should develop technology and, and uh, not only develop the technology, but also reach out with the technology on a broad scale. And that would be the solution. I think we, we actually see from a innovation point of view, I think we see the light in the tunnel. Most solutions are there, but they need to be scaled up and they need to be sometimes a little bit more efficient. Uh, but uh, we need to do it. Uh, so being a part of, of uh, a very promising big impact solution, uh, that is of course a, a great uh, driver for me. Uh, I'm a part of uh, a movement called Effective Altruism. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but it's like, how can you contribute to the world mm -hmm. in, the, in the best way? And I, I kind of dedicate myself to climate, and I think with my skills, I can uh, uh, I can do that in the best way with working with startups because that's what I know, and I can also you know invest in early ideas. Uh, so and the more money I would make, I would always also be able to invest even more. Uh, so I also think in terms of economic sustainability, you should not forget that. You, you, you need to have a, uh, an economic sustainability. Um, yeah, so I think uh, uh, having the job that I have that I can, on, on the high level, uh, make something for the climate and work on projects that really could uh, make a difference. And on, on, but there are also other levels like uh, supporting Uppsala, my, my home city, it's a medium-sized city, and to uh, engage in, in the business here and create jobs and, and wealth, uh, I think this is important for me. And if you go down one step to, to create uh, a stability for my family, is of course also important. So, um, yeah, that drives me. I think that's uh, a really good explanation of how the different spheres that one's life has intersect. You know, you just mentioned Uppsala as a community, uh, the family sphere, but then also your your personal purpose and how that actually intersects with the job that you have. And, and I think if you're able to 
shape a constellation where all those are aligned, then this becomes really impactful. And I, I really like what you said when, you know, when what you're good at from your personal point of view, so being a, a creative, adventurous person, and then aligning that with you know, the job that you have to shape a strategy for a company. And there's just the green field in front of you, literally from scaling the technology point of view, putting a plant on there as well as no one else tells you what the strategy should be. Um, and then actually working in a company that has this strong climate impact, I think that's really powerful. So um, I I really like your your answer there. And uh, I think it's a really mm-hmm. motivating, uh, motivating end to a podcast recording. Yeah, it took me a while to get here. And uh, I got the book when I was in my 20s mm-hmm. uh, about uh, a Japanese uh, philosophy called Ikagai. Yeah. Like uh, where you, you you should think about like wh- where should you be in life, where you should do something that you're good at, that's something you love, something that the world needs, and but also something that you can get paid for. And if there is one of these factors lacking, you're not there yet. So I've been looking for that for 15 years and I think I, I found my Ikigai. So if you're, if you're a listener that are still seeking, I think read, read that book uh, or read that philosophy. I can would... only second that. I, I think that's a, a really powerful concept in terms of finding purpose and then living purpose and uh, also adapting and changing uh, life uh, factors, whether it's a job, whether it's a living situation, uh, whether it's the actual location you mentioned, Uppsala as the community is sort of, if it's that coming back to maybe a community where you feel more comfortable, I think all of that um, makes a real difference. So I really like that you bring this up. Thank you. Well, Björn, it was lovely talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all the insights into your personal journey as well as NitroCap's journey. And um, good luck with scaling the company and all the um, the next steps. Where I'll be sure to have a look out for the news to come. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure, really. Thank you. Thank you.